This is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and every fourth Sunday of Easter, it's, it's also called Good Shepherd Sunday, and we read a reading in the Gospel of John about the Good Shepherd, one of them. Uh, this, in, this is cycle C, the third year, and whenever it comes up, I'm always reminded that uh, this passage and a little bit more was what I had to translate from Greek into English when I was in seminary, and I made a complete pig's breakfast out of the translation. And Father Edward said, I trust you're also taking Greek next semester. <laughs> More on that in a minute. Um, the earliest depictions of, actually the earliest depiction of Jesus in Christian art is as Apollo on a chariot going up into heaven. And I saw this mosaic uh, underneath the tomb, where the tomb of Peter is, underneath the digging that we got to go into that the public uh, can't go to, or couldn't then anyway. And we had to get down on our hands and knees and put our head into a hole and go like that. And we saw the Jesus as Apollo in the chariot. But the earliest depictions in the main were all of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. So if you've ever been to Ravenna and seen the mosaics or any of the other places in Italy or other parts of Europe, uh, you will see these depictions as Jesus is the Good Shepherd. The interesting thing is that in the ancient Near East, shepherds did not have a terribly good reputation. But what the emphasis uh, here is, uh, is Jesus as that aspect of shepherding that has to do with leaving the 99 and going and getting the lost, the nurturing, caring side of what shepherds do. And it became, in some sense, a pastoral model for the early church. The earliest depictions we have of Jesus on a cross uh, date from about the 5th century. And the earliest one of all is on a door uh, at Santa Sabina Church in Rome which is one of the ancient churches. It was built in about the late 3rd or early 4th century. And on the doors, in one of the panels, there's a carving of Jesus on the cross. I lived across the street from Santa Sabina Church for eight weeks in 1975 in a pensione that uh, Clivo de Publici numero due. If you ever want to stay there, it's a nice place. At that time, in 1975, of course, Italy seemed free. It was inexpensive, to say the least. And it's right across from uh, where, you know, the movie Ben-Hur had the chariot race, the circus. So that's the, that's the location. The image of the shepherd is, is the one that helps us now make the transition, because I'm going to preach on all three readings, and we're, we're moving from the first three weeks, which is about the resurrection appearances in some form, and now we take the three great theological themes that Father Keating speaks of, God's light, God's life, and God's love, and moves now from centering them in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry to the community of faith we call the church. And now all of us become mirrors of God's light, God's life, and God's love, or at least that's uh, a central theme that Christian people have um, held before them since then. So we have a reading from the book of Acts, 
which has something to do about giving us a, a more inclusive picture of what that early model of the church may have looked like. And we have another reading from the Revelation of St. John the Divine, and it is also another liturgical fragment, and maybe something that has some application to the events that we've experienced as the American people this past week. And then we have the, the Jesus uh, talking about himself as the Good Shepherd in a controversy in the temple with some people who don't accept his messiahship and we have some conversations about who's in and who's out and how we might uh, talk about that. So that's sort of the task. <clears throat> this is a, also a, the first reading is a plug for the Revised Common Lectionary because we're introduced to somebody in, in this reading that doesn't appear much in the former lectionaries and it is Tabitha or in Greek Dorcas I prefer Tabitha to Dorcas myself, but she was a well-to-do woman who was uh, a seller of cloth, and she was prominent in the church or in the Christian community in Joppa. Joppa is a town, Ernest knows more about this than I do, but it's about 35 miles west of Jerusalem, and it's a suburb of Tel Aviv now. So that sort of gives you an idea in, in Israel. Um, uh, Tabitha uh, dies, and Peter goes to her house, and he raises her from the dead. So we begin to see the mirroring now of new life in this uh, healing that Peter performs. There's no, you, you know, when we read this stuff, you, you make up your own mind about how you think about these things, but the, the fact of the matter is it doesn't do any good to say, well, she was really in a coma. And he woke her up. You know, it doesn't, so what? The whole idea of this is to say that we begin now to see the flow of the Spirit through the apostles and through the disciples. And Tabitha and Dorcas, or Dorcas, is somebody who is referred to in the Greek text as Mathatria. It is the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. It's only used once. You know, for people who study this stuff and who get, get into it, they have all these ponies or these helps or aids. And I have one by somebody named Sabe Kubo. I don't know whether he's a Finn or from Japan or where he's from. But it's called, it's not the theological word book of the New Testament, but it's the Greek. It has every Greek word in the New Testament listed and how many times it occurs in the New Testament, right? So this word is 402 times and this one is 36 times. And this one. Well, this occurs once. So Mathetria's meaning is, to say the least, a bit sketchy, but some would say that we might translate it as a woman disciple. More to the point is that what Luke is trying to do here and what the Revised Common Lectionary is trying to do is to sort of broaden our view and understanding of what the, the, the composition of the early church was prior to the conversion of Cornelius the Centurion. The gospel was already being preached 
uh, in, in uh, the world before that big move into the Gentile thing. And so she is prominent. I think the word may have something to do, and once again, why don't they use the same word that they would use for a man? That's another conversation. But it has something to do with um, leadership and ministry. So uh, it's, it's there to, to say uh, to the readership in Luke's day, there are women now who are here in this level of leadership in the church's common life. So when we read that, part of the mirroring of God's light, God's life, and God's love may have something to do with searching and seeing more inclusivity even in the early church than people had heretofore believed, or, in, or not, that's not the right word, maybe emphasized. So it might be a good thing to uh, reflect on. When I read that this week, you know, that's what I thought about, that uh, that might be possible. And um, she was also another good example of someone who had dough, right, and was able to fund, uh, fund things. You know, Jesus' uh, Jesus's ministry was uh, aided mightily by women of substance who helped him, right, in his group following him around. And so uh, that's a, that's a good that's a something that we just should keep uh, on ice, I guess. So let me remind us of something I said about Revelation, and this I can say this now. You know, we used to think the person who wrote Revelation, or, or the tradition said, was the same person that wrote John's Gospel, right? It's probably not so, but it is so that the Greek in uh, the Revelation and the Greek in John's Gospel is pretty rudimentary. Uh, the guys who wrote those books probably had to take Greek as a second language, hmm. right? So when you so when you read it, it's it's that's the reason they gave Brewer the test out of John's Gospel because <laughs> if I'd have had a one from Luke, I would have been completely flummoxed because Luke is the Shakespeare of <coughs> Greek is perfect, very high quality. So it's easier because it's kind of you know more rudimentary. Anyway, today we continue with something that I just need to say about the Revelation. The book of Revelation is the probably the single book in the Bible that has had more novel explanations of its meaning, more crackpot followers of, of what it is that we need to know and understand there because it's the linchpin for the whole of how we understand God's purposes for the cosmos. And once we decode this thing, we're going to be able to completely understand what's coming up. Right? So last week I said to you that I am a subscriber to the, the view of what uh, the, the book of Revelation means uh, and uh, how it's to be interpreted. And the first principle in this theory is that the events that are described have already happened. The events that are described have already happened. It's called preterism. So, the readers and the listeners of the book of Revelation knew and understood all of what that, this meant, these signs and these symbols and what they were referring to. And the principal source of the symbols and the signs is the Roman imperial system, the Pax Romana. 
And the people who heard this book read to them for the first time were people who are, were living through what is described in the book of Revelation in these highly symbolic terms. They were experiencing the tension and the difficulty and the suffering uh, under the Pax Romana and the difficulties that had attached. And now we're beginning in emotional, spiritual, and mental ways to come to grips with the meaning of what this was and how they might understand this as the people of God. So when we speak today of uh, this reading, which is another liturgical fragment, in one sense the writer is it's like he's observing the liturgy and he's describing the things that are being done in the liturgy and all of the multitudes and all of, you know, sort of a, a description of what it is. It's like the Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, they're all humming up in heaven while this is all going on and he's describing how it's happening and what it is. But this is also a reading that is often read, or part of it, in the funeral liturgy of the Episcopal Church. And, the, and the, the best line in the whole thing is, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so if you're going through a lot of suffering from the Roman imperial system and you're uh, all of the continuity in your life has been wrecked and you don't know what it is or surprises have happened, uh, you hold that, that confidence that God's persistence, faithfulness to you, his steadfastness and his fidelity has healing power. And it has the power to be able to bring some sense of serenity in the midst of great confusion and turmoil. We've had this happen this week in Boston. We've had a situation where people get knocked off their pins, and it is one of those things that uh, affirms what Edwin Friedman, one of my great heroes, says, we live in a culture, we live in a world that is chronically anxious. Chronically anxious. And so these things don't help. If you, as if you needed another thing to be anxious about, right? And uh, now it's pressure cookers, you know. So the thing is about that, that is that we take some uh, comfort from the biblical witness and the book of Revelation, which sounds very mysterious and hard to follow and everything today, is about God's ability to bring this soothing, nurturing power uh, to bear on bad situations as it is described in Revelation, but then going to the image of the Good Shepherd, whose nurturing qualities, whose ability now to uh, bring to bear uh, that side of God is a very important thing. So this is reaffirmed in the reading from John's Gospel, where Jesus is in the temple precincts and he's engaged in a controversy with people who are saying, tell us if you're the Messiah. And he said, I've told you over and over again, I'm the Messiah, but you wouldn't listen. Right? And so then he makes a distinction. He talks about, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. Right? They don't accept his Messiahship. They have rejected his Messiahship. But elsewhere in John's Gospel, not too far away, is another line that is the one that's more important to me, and it doesn't appear today. 
I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And so the task, in Jesus' view, is that we reach out to those people. Right? We don't always have to think of this in terms of the hard edge of conversion. We have to think about how we come together uh, focusing on the similarities and not the differences uh, in our common life. I, for example, happen to believe John Paul II, who said, because of the Holocaust, we have lost our right to preach the gospel to the Jews. At least for a while. So thinking about that means, what do you mean? I can't proclaim my greatest place of safety and assurance to anybody? Maybe not, maybe. But when we think about that, maybe the the focus on uh, telling people that if they don't uh, convert to Christianity, their post-mortem bliss is in jeopardy. what we've said. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So what does it mean when God's saving embrace comes round like this? Isaiah thought that through his prophecy and through the other great prophets, what was being proclaimed was that God's saving embrace was not just for the people of the covenant, It was for everyone. And Jesus Christ came and in his earthly ministry said, I, like Isaiah and the others, are proclaiming the fact that God's saving embrace is not just for the people of God, but for everyone, and they're all coming in. They come into the fold. And how do we understand what that means? In fact, you could argue that in many places in the New Testament, it's all about how that works. And it, won't, it isn't either or, it may be both and. And that's probably one of the biggest tasks that Christian people face in every age. It's really another subject, but I got off on that tangent. Uh, this week, think about the Good Shepherd and how you can model in your uh, mirror in your own God's light, God's life, God's love in terms of the nurturing qualities of the Good Shepherd. And that if Jesus is the template that you lay over your own spiritual life and development, then you need to cultivate these shepherding qualities. And you already do with your families and your friends and in the workplace in a proper sense. And think about the fact that... Uh, Jesus has other sheep that are not of this fold and that you may be doing a good work in the world when you're willing to reach out to people who are different than you and seek to come to some form of um, agreement and consensus about the way in which we should move forward as diverse people. And then remember that in the midst of great tragedy, great difficulty, great misunderstanding, great suffering, God will wipe away every tear from your eye. Amen.